incredible to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. Today we're going to answer one of the most common questions we receive from just about everyone, listeners, travelers, our friends and family and, and complete strangers. And that question is, what's the difference or what are the differences between sake and shochu? And we're going to talk about how these wonderful Japanese drinks are coming from the same history the same origin, the same past, but we're also going to focus a lot on what makes them different, unique, and of course, how best to enjoy these drinks. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan, and with me, as always, broadcasting from Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals. We're both published authors, and perhaps surprisingly to some of you out there, we're also both kikisakeshi, or certified sake professionals. We've been exploring these amazing drinks for more than a decade, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. So please download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled Podcast on your preferred podcast platform or app, or you can download these episodes and listen to them directly from our website, japandistilled.com. So Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, as always, Christopher. It's a little chilly down here in Fukuoka. We've been having snow for the past couple of days, which is really rare uh, in this part of Japan. But it makes me want to tuck into some Atsukan sake or Oyuwari shochu. But maybe that's jumping ahead. <laughs> no. Well, okay. Yeah, maybe we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with that one. How you been doing? Yeah, you know, just just working, working, working and, and trying to make sure that I spend time outside under the sunlight, getting that vitamin D every day. Uh, I, you know, mostly have been going for walks. I know you've been jogging a bit, right? I have. Between jogging and cycling, I tend to get my outside exercise. But as I said, with the snow, it's been a little difficult the last few days. I've actually already run twice this year, which is uh, pretty good for me. And it wasn't because something was chasing you. No, no. You know, I was inspired by the Ekiden. For those uh, outside of Japan, you don't know about this wonderful tradition, but it's this really long race, uh, over 100 kilometers, but it's a relay and it's it's run by colleges up in Hakone. And it's kind of a tradition to watch it around New Year's. And that inspired me to get out my jogging shoes and, and do some laps around Ohoi Park. So, I, you know, I don't want to get too sidetracked onto things like that because... Most people aren't ever going to watch the Ekiden, but I mean, for the topic at hand, you actually discovered shochu in a sake bar, didn't you? Can you explain how that happened? Yeah, I guess that was in the first couple of months that I lived in Japan, the end of, geez, 2002 and moving into 2003, I was living near this tiny train station. And at night, I would sometimes stop in at this really small izakaya, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And the guy behind the bar, we couldn't really communicate. This is before I spoke any Japanese, really. I just worked my way across the sake cooler a few times. And then one day, he just shoved some barley shochu in front of me. And that was the start of it. And I was smitten. And I started seeking it out. And so, yeah, I was, I was, I guess you could say I was a 
into sake first, I think. Ah, so you actually discovered and knew a little bit about sake before shochu. Yeah, you know, when I lived in the States, I had never heard of shochu. When I moved to Korea, I had never heard of shochu. Um, and to be fair, my experiences with sake were not great up to that point, and they weren't even good. Um, so it was really when I came to Japan and I started to very carefully start to try to understand sake, I was pleasantly surprised. It was completely different from my experiences in the States. And so, yeah, I was absolutely a fan of sake before I ever even heard the word shochu for the first time. How about you? Which one of these did you fall in love with first? You know, I had had sake. In fact, I had spent time in izakayas in New York City without actually having them explained to me as izakayas. I just thought that they were sushi restaurants that serve more than sushi. Uh, you know, a lot of izakayas in the States will have maki rolls, you know, uh, sushi rolls, California rolls, things like that. So for me, it was all the same. It was just Japanese food. But it turns out, in retrospect, I was actually visiting izakayas without realizing it. But nobody ever told me about shochu. So I was drinking sake at that time, but I really didn't have any sense of it. It was just this, in my mind, this sweet rice wine, which is a terrible way to describe the drink. But it was really when I discovered shochu in an izakaya, which was also the first time I realized what an izakaya was, that I really fell in love with one of these drinks. So I'd say like I fell in love with shochu first, but then it was over time that I gained an appreciation for sake. And it was really through my friends in New York in the sake industry you know, who were happy to have this kind of weird shochu guy tagging along to their <laughs> events, uh, that they also educated me on sake. And eventually I, I went on and got my certification. Um, but yeah, why don't we just get into it? I guess my question for you, you know, I think you've been doing events and education around these things longer than I have. And so when you're hosting a shochu or awamori tasting in Tokyo, and someone asks you that inevitable question, is this sake? How do you answer? Yeah, that comes up all the time. I've been doing, well, in, at least until we were dealing with quarantines and things of that nature, I was doing regular sake and shochu tastings often side by side. And it was difficult to get people's heads around at first just because they had never heard of shochu or they thought that they had heard of shochu and they were woefully mistaken about what they had been drinking in the past. Basically, what I say is shochu and awamori are Japan's indigenous spirits. And that tends to wake up a part of their, their brain, their life experience that allows them to start to understand the major difference. And then I can say something like, you know, sake is more in the family of beer and wine, and shochu is in the, in the spirits family, like tequila, whiskey, gin, and those sorts of drinks. And I guess that's kind of the foundational or the starting point for a lot of people in terms of how they will begin to categorize everything else that we experience during the tasting. How about you? Do you have a different way of explaining it? The easiest way I can explain it is sake is like beer, or I say sake is brewed like beer, where shochu is distilled like whiskey or gin or vodka. Vodka might not be a good example since it's not multiply distilled, but, uh, and I think people tend to get that, but a lot, I'm, it's surprising to me how many drinkers actually don't understand distillation, that there's a difference between brewed beverages and, and, uh, distilled beverages. And so sometimes it takes a little bit longer to explain, but eventually I think people get it. 
And the the key point for me in, is really in the production method, right? I mean, the ingredients are actually quite similar most of the time, although sake can only be made from rice. But uh, shochu is often made from rice or it has rice in the ingredients. And then they both use koji, which is what gets this whole thing going, right? That's how, how the fermentation happens, as we've talked about before. But sake has a much older history. I mean, sake, like what we think of as today's sake has probably been produced in Japan for over a thousand years. And it's probably been a commercial product sold in Japan for 800, 700 years, where shochu and awamori have a little bit younger history. Distillation technology didn't even arrive in Japan until probably 500 years ago or so. And so sake is an older drink, but it's it's a key point that both sake and shochu are recognized by the Japanese government as kokushu or uh, the official drinks of Japan. They're national beverages and they're recognized equally in that sense because sake is the official brewed beverage and shochu is the official distilled beverage. And, you know, how shochu took off relative to sake, I think is really just a story of necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, when you think about where sake is made in Japan or which areas of Japan are famous for sake production, you're, you're talking about basically northern Kyushu and to the east and to the north. So you're talking about climates that don't get subtropical, I guess is maybe one way to classify the rest of Kyushu and down into Okinawa. Basically, parts of Japan that are too hot, really, to have a safe fermentation using the koji type that is used in almost all sake production, and that is kikoji or yellow koji, a type of koji that doesn't produce a lot of acidity in the fermentation and therefore doesn't do a very good job if you leave the windows open anyway or, or you have a very open distillery of preventing other microorganisms from dropping into the fermentation and, de you know, devouring the glucose as quickly as they can. So that kind of prevents sake or prevented sake from being produced in southern Kyushu and Oki uh, Okinawa, at least safely, up until not too long ago, when better brewery standards were introduced and climate control capabilities became the norm. And you could have air-conditioned air brewing areas. It was much more realistic. But that is a very recent iteration on brewing standards and the types of facilities that have been built for sake production. Whereas distillation and, of course, also the other types of koji that are used to make shochu and awamori and fundamentally white and black koji which create tons of acidity in the fermentation and therefore allow you a bit more wiggle room in terms of fighting off or preserving the integrity of the fermentation, even in a hot climate, uh, that, that became the norm, that became the standard, that became the people's drink down in the southern parts of Japan. And again, that's probably the southern two-thirds of Kyushu plus all the islands south and to the west of there. So I guess there's 
there's a bit of a regionality to it, I, I would say. And the mother of invention as, uh, quip that you threw in there at the end is, is uh, yeah, folks down in the South, they needed they needed reliable sources of hooch, especially back in the day when life wasn't very easy. And distillation definitely made that uh, reality for them. That's right. I think, and if you research the history of, of these two drinks, it's so striking that it was really Buddhist monks in Nara, which was the capital of Japan before Kyoto, that created and refined the modern sake-making methods. Virtually everything about how sake is made today was developed by these Buddhist priests in the 700s. You're talking about rice polishing, uh, your your uh, starter mash, your fermentation process, uh, how you clarify, how you press sake to get a clear beverage rather than the cloudy beverage that a rice, uh, you know, an unfiltered uh, sake would be. All of that was... Uh, created by these priests who were very close to the centers of power. And they were really making sake as a gift to the gods and as a gift to the emperor, right? So you're talking about a drink that really was developed and grew up and formed around royalty and these religious ceremonies and things like that, where with shochu, it was the polar opposite. This was moonshine being made by farmers and fishermen down in Kyushu, which in that era of Japanese history was about as far as you could get from the centers of power as you could be without leaving Japan. And so the local drink was really anything they could get their hands on that they could reliably make alcohol out of. And I think pretty quickly, I'm guessing, this is all conjecture because there's no written records, you know, farmers and fishermen were illiterate at that time, uh, that their own home brews, their own home fermentations down in Kyushu, Kyushu, where it was hot and humid, probably didn't taste very good. They're probably quite acidic, or they had all sorts of off flavors created by other organisms. They might have been dangerous to drink uh, due to you know invasive bacteria or molds that that weren't healthy for humans to consume. And distillation solved that problem. And so people ended up drinking distilled alcohol, preferably, I'm guessing, because it tasted better, and if you, uh, I've visited sake breweries and I've tried the Maromi, I've tasted the fermentation. It's got a slight acidity to it because of the added lactic acid in the fermentation process. And I've tasted both black and white koji shochu fermentations and they're much more acidic. They are sweet, but they're acidic. And they wouldn't, I think if you just took a, a barley shochu ferment and you pressed it, when you thought it was finished and you bottled it, it would be a sour beverage. It would not be very uh, elegant or or sweet like sake tends to be. But if you distill that same fermentation, you end up with a lovely, lovely drink, which is barley shochu. And I think it would be similar for sweet potato. And so that distillation really provided the local people with a reliable, delicious drink to consume. Uh, because of distillation. And that's really, I think, how that regionality broke out. But if you if you break down the fundamentals between sake making, shochu making, and awamori making, they are very similar and that you end up and yet you end up with very different drinks. 
you start by making koji, right? You need koji to break the starches into sugars so that the yeast can convert the sugars to alcohol. And that's true in all three of these traditions. They all use multiple parallel fermentation. Once you're adding water and yeast, you've got the koji working with the yeast to do all of this work at once. The fermentations get to, depending on the base ingredients, between 15 and 20% alcohol, even a little bit higher after in, I guess, in shochu and awamori, it's about a three-week fermentation process. In sake, especially premium sake, it can run longer. Part of that is because with sake production, you're often fermenting at lower temperatures. And this, again, is to maintain the uh, maintain the, the health of the fermentation because yellow koji doesn't create as much or any acid, uh, where white and black koji can ferment safely at higher temperatures because they create a lot of uh, citric acid. But sake generally takes about, a premium sake anyway, takes about twice as long for the fermentation. And then you press and then you bottle in that sake with shochu and awamori, you take that fermentation and you put it in the still, you distill it, and then you've got a higher proof alcohol that is your uh, your final product, depending on how you age it, that sort of thing. And I think the fact that there's different alcohol percentages and then sake has residual sugars and sometimes some residual acidity, it ends up being very different how these drinks are enjoyed. Isn't that right, Christopher? Definitely. I mean, a lot of the time when you're sipping sake, you're going to be doing it from relatively smaller vessels. And when you're sipping shochu, because it is often either watered down or diluted, or it's on the rocks, it either way, you're going to need a larger vessel, you're going to need bigger ceramic cups, or whatever you happen to be drinking out of the traditional sake cup, the choco is one of those little white ceramic cups with those uh, sometimes the two blue concentric rings at the in the the bottom of the cup and those are very common for tasting because they help you to see differentiations in color but you also get other beautiful little uh, vessels that are made from a variety of materials and the same is true with shochu i guess in terms of how they are consumed. I, one similarity is that sake and shochu and awamori can be consumed at a very wide range of temperatures. And that's from super cold to pretty damn warm. One major difference, though, is that sake tends not to be diluted with water. You could say that it is cut with other mixers occasionally these days as people start to experiment in the cocktail world, but it's still pretty rare to enjoy sake anything other than by itself. Whereas with shochu and awamori, it's very common to pour those drinks over the rocks or to ha you know to prepare a mizuari, which is basically a rocks preparation with some extra water added to it, or oyuari, which is something that I think is perfect for January and the cold winter months. And honestly, I think it's perfect for any month, but it's when you mix shochu or awamori with hot water. And those are some of the standard ways to enjoy those two drinks. Sorry, one more I should add to shochu and awamori is with club soda. So a, a style that is often referred to as sodawari in Japan or a soda mix. But 
I guess in in that sense, there's a little bit more flexibility on the show to an Aomori side. And since I already mentioned cocktails briefly when I was referring to sake, I think shoju and aomori have a lot more flexibility when it comes to their potential in the world of cocktails. I think that's really fair to say. You know, most all all cocktails basically use a distilled spirit as a base, and so shoju and aomori being a distilled spirit uh, or being distilled spirits certainly puts them into that conversation. I think the conversation about temperature is interesting because typically with shochu and awamori, you're drinking it on the rocks, so the ice is chilling it, or you're drinking it straight, which would be room temperature, or you're warming it up with the oyu, with the hot water, right? So you sort of have these three zones of of temperature. But in sake, I've been to sake bars where they will basically use five degree increments of temperature. This is in Celsius, not in Fahrenheit. But each of those has a different name. And each of those, each of those ranges has a different name. And, and each of those ranges will give you a different experience with the same sake. And this really came to light for me when I went to a place called uh, Washu Bar Engawa, which is in Yama. Yamanaka Onsen in Ishikawa Prefecture. And not only will the bartender serve you the same sake at different temperatures, he will serve you the same sake at the same temperature in different glassware. He'll use glass. He'll use a traditional choco, which you mentioned before. He'll use a rough-hewn pottery. He'll use lacquerware. He'll use wood. He'll use tin. And just the different material that the sake is sitting in at the same temperature changes the taste and the experience. It's wild. So sake, I think, has a lot of nuance because it's a brewed beverage that you might not get the same degree of nuance from shochu and awamori, but awamori has the flexibility of all the different ways that you can mix them, which also give you a wide variety of experiences. And so I think both of these drinks are really wonderful beverages in their own right. And it's really a matter of which you prefer and what what matches your mood or what matches your situation in what you're eating, who you're hanging out with, what, what kind of experience you're having, what kind of experience you want to have. So I think they're both, as I said, you know, lovely drinks, but they're also in competition in a way, right? And for a long time, sake was king in Japan, right, Christopher? I think that may be changing a little bit. Oh, yeah, that that definitely changed. I mean, I, I think I should start by saying, if we're talking about domestic trends anyway, in terms of alcohol consumption writ large, you're you're looking at a steep decline in the, the amount, the literage per citizen per annum. And that, I guess we should say anyone over the age of 20, 20 years old, 20 years old is the age of majority in Japan. Anybody 20 years old and older, the amount of alcohol that they're consuming on an annual basis has been dropping, I think, since the 90s. And that certainly took a chunk out of uh, sake first. And sake, which was basically the, you know, as everybody often thought was Japan's drink, really started to tail off heavily back in the 90s and it's continued to this day it really there hasn't been any respite from that dis- decline uh shochu on the other hand was kind of growing 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 as the 
you know, these single distilled spirits found some fame and popularity outside of Kyushu or outside of their home ground, they came into pretty serious demand in larger cities around Japan. That includes Tokyo and Yokohama. It includes Osaka. It includes Nagoya. And in 2002-2003, the amount of shochu that was consumed in Japan started to exceed that of sake in terms of the the you know the kiloliters that were shipped around the country, and that hasn't changed. But what has changed after about 2008 or nine, somewhere in there, maybe a little bit later than that, maybe 2010 or so, uh, you know. Shochu kind of hit its ceiling and has also started to decline at a similar rate to sh- to the sake industry. And, you know, numbers are down all across the board. The amount of beer that's consumed on an annual basis has been dropping. The amount of wine and whiskey that's been co- is consumed by people living in Japan is also decreasing. So, you know, the it's not looking very rosy or positive these days and we keep hearing stories about sake breweries and shochu distilleries and awamori distilleries that are struggling so it's it's a situation where you know either you need a whole bunch of new young people that are suddenly into these drinks or you need new markets yeah i think that's really true and that's something that i think the sake industry has realized for a long time i guess because their decline started sooner where the shochu makers were really happy with their newfound popularity and they were focused on domestic consumption. The sake brewery started looking overseas quite early. And I believe there are probably close to a thousand different sake brands currently exported across the world. It's extremely popular in New York City. In other parts of the US, I've heard of sake bars popping up. Recently met the owner of a sake bar in Providence, Rhode Island. And so it's really, it's become a very common drink in the States. And I think most American drinkers and European drinkers as well are familiar with sake. They probably tried it. They may even enjoy it regularly, where that's not true at all for shochu and awamori, which are still extremely unknown. And, you know, less than 1% of shochu is is exported to anywhere in the world, let alone uh, to the West. But sake has become quite popular in the States. It now appears on pairing menus at fine dining restaurants when they're open. And it's become quite a popular drink. But I think shochu is going to have its day as well. At least that's what I'm hoping. I think, you know, Christopher, you and I, whenever we're together, we always drink shochu, right? It's invariable. We might have a couple of beers. We may go to a craft beer bar. We might even go to an Italian restaurant and have a couple of glasses of wine. But at some point in the evening, we're going to have shochu or awamori. But so I don't actually know your preferences in sake. Like when you drink sake, what are you looking for? What's your style? What do you enjoy? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I prefer something that's on the drier side. And I, so I, yeah, definitely drier sake is kind of my thing. I love namagenshu. I love older, you know, production methods such as uh, Yamahai. And I like, I like full bodied Nihonshu, something that's got a lot of character, something to chew on something several layers of of flavor and so i'm not really into sweeter things i'm not really into thinner drinks or or something without without as much acidity 
Um, and I think that kind of mirrors my preferences in wine, if I'm perfectly honest. How about you? Yeah, you know, it really depends on my mood. And of course, what it, what's the purpose? When it comes to pairing sake with food, especially richer food, I tend to like something like you're describing. And, you know, my absolute favorite sake is the Tamagawa Yamahai Junmai Muroka Namagenshu, or the mm -hmm. white label from Philip Harper. It's an unbelievably chewy, rich, lush drink. And if I had to use one word to describe the, the flavor, I would say Parmesan cheese. Like it is not at all what you expect from sake, right? Which a lot of people associate with sort of a sweet, light drink. Uh, and on the other hand, I really, really like nama, which is unpasteurized sake, and it's usually sold young. Uh, so it doesn't have a lot of age on it and it tends to be really bright and effervescent. So it's almost the other end of the spectrum. And I guess that sort of mirrors my shochu preferences where I really like the big full bodied, you know, as we would say, emo kusai or smelly sweet potato, uh, sweet potato shochus or the really rich, unctuous awamori. On the other hand, I really love a nice, light, bright genshu or vacuum distilled barley or rice or, or sake kasu, sake li shochu, you know, kasutori shochu. So for me, I guess my sake preferences fit a similar profile. I like the ends of the spectrum almost. Although I, I agree the really light fruity ginjo styles, I'll enjoy them, but it's a very specific time when I'm going to want to drink that, uh, where I, I tend toward those really rich full body styles or the very interesting, bright, refreshing styles. That's a lot of different styles. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It is. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. If you'd like to learn more about any of the drinks that we discussed on this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast, then please pick up a copy of Stephen's book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, which, of course, has chapters on sake, shoju, and awamori. It's available on Amazon, as well as through your lo local bookseller. And if it's not, then please ask them to source it. Also, please tune in every week for our Shochu Pro Show Tuesday Instagram Live on my Instagram feed, and you can find it at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I. -E -E I think I spelled that right. You can also find me on Twitter, and on that one, it's at Chris. Pellegrini. And that's C-H-R-I-S before my surname. Stephen, how about you? You can find me at Shochu Danji. That's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I on Twitter and Instagram. I would also like to recommend the excellent Sake on Air podcast. If you'd like to learn more about sake in English from some Japan-based sake experts. I also enjoy UrbanSake.com from Timothy Sullivan and John Puma's The Sake Notes. We'll be sure to put the links in the show notes. As always, if you have any questions about these drinks, please feel free to reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram. We're always more than happy to chat. And with that, I will simply say thank you and kanpai. Kanpai. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. If so, then please rate or review us on your favorite podcast listening app. And we'll be back in your feed soon with our next episode. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. 
Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. 